guess. Is hell. Okie doke. The future ain't what it used to be, and the past ain't what it used to be either. This is hell. Before the pandemic first came to the United States three years and four days ago, we all had hopes and dreams of what was ahead of us, what was ahead for us, and what our futures would be that did not include the COVID-19 virus killing millions of people. We were not hoping or dreaming that we would soon be protecting ourselves from a deadly, contagious, and easy-to-transmit plague. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic was as inevitable as the next pandemic will be because we refuse to accept what caused humanity to get in contact with the virus in the first place. And just like the current pandemic, nobody will see the next unavoidable pandemic coming either, just like we are not currently seeing the dramatic climate change that is coming that we are doing relatively nothing to stop and the market along with states are doing everything they can to incentivize that incredible climate change we're about to witness it's as if we have made some unwritten grand bargain with all of our destructive practices that lead to existential crises like pandemics and climate change we won't mention their role in the destruction of human life or the entire planet as long as that destructive system temporarily in the grand scheme of things provides luxury for some while the majority of humanity suffers in misery. As we have been saying since the beginning of this pandemic, capitalism is the virus and this is hell. And this week we are remembering the first reported cases of COVID in the United States and here in Chicago by playing the lost early pandemic tapes, a collection of interviews that have never before aired on our home station, Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. The reason these interviews were never played is COVID took everyone by surprise, oddly enough. Sure, according to reports, the virus had been around for about a month in China, and it was sweeping across China, one, na- one which, uh, a nation that plays a role, huge role in globalized trade, especially with the United States. So something could have been done to slow its role to the U.S., but very little was. And by January 20th, 2020, the virus had been reported in the States. Four days later, on January 24th, 2020, which is today, for those of you listening to the live stream, January 24th, uh, three years ago today, the first reported case was in Illinois, where we broadcast from here in Chicago. But again, nothing was done other than telling people to cough into their elbows until March 20th, until almost two months later, the first day of spring, six and a half weeks later, when the state of Illinois following CDC guidelines, finally announced a stay-at-home order for everyone except essential workers doing what was suddenly essential work, but had beforehand been known as unskilled low-wage labor. Essential, unskilled, low-wage work. Like, apparently, this is hell, because the media was allowed to carry on. And although we say this is not the media, this is hell, as one of our taglines, we will gladly exploit the privileges of the media in a pinch. However, WNUR is located on Northwestern University's campus, and the campus, upon the state's announcement of a stay-at-home order, immediately went on complete lockdown, thus making the station completely inaccessible to us. The station went into an automated setting until they figured out a way to broadcast new content. 
But we kept doing new shows from here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, streaming live online at thisishell.com and podcast shortly after every weekday morning at 10 a.m. U.S. Central Time. Unfortunately, those shows never aired on WNUR. And to show our appreciation for our listeners on WNUR and their 26-plus years of support for This Is Hell, as well as our thanks to everyone at the station, the students, community members, the programming and executive boards and faculty advisors, as well as engineers, and to recognize that without Chicago Sound Experiment, This Is Hell would simply not exist, we are playing conversations we had on the show but were never heard on WNUR from the earliest days of the pandemic. We started this week by sharing an April 27th, 2020 discussion we had with conservationist Vijay Kolonjavadi on his argument that the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change are one and the same thing. And we cannot do anything about either unless we address both. I mentioned off the cuff that he and another uh, past guest, Aaron Van Singen, uh, they have a new book coming out. I checked and it isn't published until August, but it's called The Sustainability Class, How to Take Back Our Future from Lifestyle Environmentalists. In Vijay's and Aaron's new new book coming out again this summer, they argue that the environmental movement has been hijacked by the elite and we need a movement for and by everyone if we plan on doing anything about climate change or pandemics. You may remember Aaron being on our show last year to talk about his latest book, The Future is Degrowth. The next interview in the series, which we are going to be playing in a few minutes, is an interview we did with economist Eileen Applebaum uh, from March 25th, 2020. She is the co-author of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, The U.S. Response to COVID-19 what's in federal legislation, and what's not, but still needed. Remember, this was during the Trump administration when they were trying to figure out what kind of federal aid people would need. 10 days into lockdown, we were already talking to guests about what we would need to survive the plague. We'll find out in a few when we play our talk with Eileen. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, anything new by you? I was just just having some really weird stuff was just happening on this computer. <laughs> the mouse, I can't even describe it. Like I was worried I was going to delete everything, but but you know I think maybe yesterday I helped my friend clean out her storage space. Okay. She sells stuff on eBay and has a lot of stuff, and I might have caught a ghost or something from that because <laughs> everything it's is weird. freaking out over there. Yeah, right now. <laughs> but it's it's good. It's better now. It's better now. All right. Yeah. So the, the ghost may have stepped out of the room for a second. <laughs> I think the ghost wants to hear the interview. So <laughs> <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The this is hell T-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter hat, as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember. This is Hell is completely listener-supported, and without you, 
there wouldn't be a This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we need to have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following a very special presentation of one of my Patreon monologues, which we are bringing out from behind the paywall. So you'll get a taste of what is happening every week on This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. It's, uh, this monologue is about my anniversary with the person I love, a person I have been with for a very long time, but I've never married, and I admit exactly how long that's been, how long we've been together without being married. And I explain the challenges of a long-term unlicensed relationship completely out of the purview of the state or any organized religion. You may have heard me mention in early December that during This Is Hell office hours, our weekly Wednesday meet and greet, that's really a drink and think. A listener dropped by who said he was from Canada, specifically Hamilton, Ontario. After we spoke for a bit, he finally introduced himself to me as Adam and explained that he was the person who did the latest logo for This Is Hell, the one that is on all of our merchandise right now. After talking to him for 15, 20 minutes, he finally said, oh yeah, by the way, I'm the guy who made your logo. So over the uh, holidays, a package arrived in the mail, and if you would rather connect with us in a non-virtual way, you can send real stuff in the actual mail to us at This Is Hell. 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And this package came from Adam. Inside is a coffee mug. On the mug is an image that looks like a photo from the mid-1970s. There's a woman in a checkered shirt with sleeves rolled up, wearing white slacks with a short, bobbed, almost like Billie Jean King-like haircut. She's sitting outside with a man who has a 70s perm-like, almost bouffant hairdo, big sideburns, short-sleeved, collared sports shirt that bears his chest. The woman is smiling while looking at her hands, and the man sitting next to her is leaning over a bit as if he's concerned. The caption to the image, which seems to be what the man is saying to the smiling woman, is, do you think we're alive? And inside the coffee mug is a letter which reads, Dear Chuck, it was great meeting you at office hours, a highlight of my time in Chicago when I visited. Thanks again for the stories, the studio tour, and the gifts. Because one nice mug deserves another, please find a closed one for you. It's not the new piece of art. I promised it's from about 2010, back when I had the half-serious idea of turning my collage art into merchandise. But it's one of my favorites and expresses a sentiment that's perhaps more resonant with each passing year again that message is do you think we're alive hope you enjoy the mug and then he has an asterisk next to the word mug and it says this mug is not recommended to drink from the print quality done by dye sublimation of the batch of mugs i had made turned out to be very poor and the print with will quickly fade if washed 13 years later i'm still bummed about this. He then continues, maybe next time I come to Chicago, I'll actually have some new art to share. Again, he has an asterisk connected to that, and it says new physical art. I share my uh, collages digitally at thepleasureisback.com and at pleasureisback on Instagram. Cheers, Adam. So, Adam, thanks for the mug. Thanks for the logo. Thanks for hanging out during office hours. Thanks for listening to the show. And while I cannot drink from your mug, uh, your Do You Think We're Alive coffee mug will right now, as of this moment, 
replace my This Is Hell coffee mug, my camping mug, as the new studio desktop pen mug. So thank you very much, Adam. I truly appreciate everything you've done. We also got an email in November that I overlooked because it was sent while I was out with COVID. The email starts, Dear Chuck, my name is Jared Shanahan. I am the author of Captives, How Rikers Island Took New York City Hostage. Uh, editor of Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity, and now the co-author with Jandarka Kurti, name that might sound familiar to some of our listeners, of States of Incarceration, Rebellion, Reform, and America's Punishment System. Jana and I also edit Hard Crackers, Chronicles of Everyday Life. And I knew that because Jana actually emailed us a month earlier, back in October of last year. Jared continues, Anyway, Jana and I are both big fans of the show and would love to stop by sometime. We could talk about States of Incarceration or the other book, Treason to uh, Whiteness, or Hard Crackers. We could talk Hollywood or all of the above. Kindly let us know if you are interested. All the best, Jared Shanahan. So, States and Treason, again, are both books by Jared and Jana. Jared wrote States, and uh, and uh, Jared and Jana contributed to Treason to Whiteness. Hardcrackers is a publication which we featured on the show, and you should go check out at hardcrackers.com. Jared, apologies for the oversight and not sharing your email until now, but, you know, COVID. But yeah, sure, it sounds great. Uh, we'll reach out to you soon. And if you just want to drop by during the Cell Office Hours on Wednesday evenings here at Carrie's Lounge, that'd be great too. Coming up, a discussion only 10 days into lockdown on what we should do to survive. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which I didn't even ask you. What is this week's question from hell, Lindsay? It's okay. Over here, I realized mostly of Firefox was my issue. <laughs> So I've been teaching myself how to use Safari. Uh, <laughs> so you're having a blast over there. Yeah, I had to like just get into Facebook on the other browser, and I just oh. did. So perfect timing. This week's question from Hal: <laughs> What weather event would finally bring humanity to its senses? Maybe. Maybe. And uh, we got a couple more emails, including a guest suggestion and another listener who wants to know about our current openings for in-studio producers, as well as people who can work for us remotely. And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Live from the United States, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. Live from the nightmare of want, this is how the $2 trillion Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, which passed last week, was already the third COVID-19 aid package passed, and a fourth is already being worked on, which makes sense. Or it will, after you hear our guest. Returning to this is held to explain to us the shortcomings, missed opportunities, and still potential possibilities when it comes to addressing our economy under the pandemic, economist Eileen Applebaum is co-author of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, The U.S. Response to COVID-19, What's in Federal federal Legislation and What's Not But Still Needed, which she co-wrote with Sean Fremstead. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Eileen. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. You can follow Eileen on Twitter at Eileen Applebaum, and you can find out more about CEPR at CEPR.net. When it comes to the 
When it comes to paid family and medical leave in the stimulus package, as your report points out, there will be up to 12 weeks of paid leave for employees who are unable to work due to a need for leave or care for their child because the school or daycare has been closed or the child care provider is unavailable due to a public health emergency. You and your co-author do not think this benefit should end on December 31st, 2020 at the end of this calendar year, as the stimulus bill states. Why is it important now to extend a deadline of a benefit that may not be needed in 2021 next year after the funding runs out on December 31st? Why not make this decision later as we get closer to the deadline? Well, I have to tell you that getting uh, paid sick leave and paid family and medical leave for workers uh, nationally and in the States has been part of my life's work. I headed the Center for Women and Work at Rutgers when we won uh, paid family leave in New Jersey, a state that had paid medical leave since the 1940s. Uh, so uh, I've been on this for a very long time. It's something that people have needed desperately for decades, if not longer. It's something we should already have. Uh, and uh, Having an emergency version of it, we do have an emergency version of paid sick days. You, If you're a full-time worker, you're eligible for up to 80 hours or two weeks of paid sick days. Uh, Part-time workers get that prorated. But on the paid uh, family and medical leave, I'm sorry to say that you gave the bill even more credit than it deserves. Not only does it sunset at the end of this year, when in fact we need permanent uh, paid family and medical leave, but it doesn't actually give you paid family and medical leave. There is paid leave uh, for the situation in which your child's school has closed. This is a young child, cannot be left alone at home, and so you must stay home with them. You get 12 weeks of leave, 10 of which are paid, the first two unpaid, and the following 10 are paid. But if you get COVID-19 yourself, think of that situation. You have the COVID-19. You have two weeks of paid sick days, and that's the end of it. We do not have paid medical leave. We do not have even that 12 weeks of paid medical leave for a person who themselves has the COVID-19. Or you have elderly parents who have it, and you need to care for them, or a spouse or a child, uh, or, or, or just a close friend, somebody who needs you to care for them. That would be the family leave piece of it, and we do not have that either. So uh, this bill is desperately short uh, when it comes to providing people with income when they must uh, stay home either because they are sick themselves or because they are caring for a seriously ill family member or close friend. So uh, it, it, it just doesn't fill the bill. So you have been working on paid family and medical leave for, as you were just saying, for a very long time. Uh, and there is a front page story in the New York Times today about concerns over potential new rules that the Trump administration puts in place that may lead to possibly more oppressive laws that are imposed on the American people. Is there also the opportunity, do you see an opportunity at this time to bring about things that you've been working on your entire life, things like paid family and medical leave, or do you think that these, this is not a chance for any kind of long-term opportunity like that? This is all just temporary and it's not going to lead to any long withstanding uh, process. So uh, even before the pandemic struck, this past December, uh, groups and groups and groups that have been working in the states, 
uh, working at national uh, organizations like mine, uh, uh, have have been working on this, and we do have uh, several states now uh, that have passed uh, pay, family, and medical leave. Many more that have paid sick days laws, either statewide or in cities. But what we did in December is we launched a campaign called Paid Leave for All, with the idea that by 2021 we wanted to see a national uh, a national law that provided. Uh, these kinds of programs. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be an accident of where you work uh, that gets you paid leave when you're sick and you need it. Uh, so this, this, this has been in the works for a long time. We launched a national campaign in December, and we are hard, hard, hard at work on it. Uh, there's lots of support for it in Congress, uh, in the House, and in the Senate. And uh, we were optimistic that we would be able to move this issue, get it to be a, on the national uh, uh, radar and so on. Uh, I will say that one of the things about this pandemic is it's gotten lots of people to really understand that we need paid sick days and paid family and medical leave, especially among the people who have office jobs, who are college educated, uh, all those people who are working from home right now and uh, not losing a paycheck many of them already have from their employers paid sick days, short-term disability, uh, the ability to take uh, time off uh, under the old FMLA, which does not give you any money, but your employer can, of course, pay for it. And so I think there are a lot of people, uh, among your listeners probably, who were not aware until this happened that people who work in restaurants, people who work in retail shops, people who uh, drive trucks and deliver that last mile delivery for Amazon, the Amazon Prime workers, the Walmart workers, that these workers do not have a paid sick day, much less a paid family leave day. Uh, and so they are really uh, desperate. And uh, I, I think that this was sort of hidden. And uh, one of the things the pandemic has done is it has highlighted this. It has made it really, really clear that we have lots of people, uh, people who we've looked down on in the past, uh, who we said, oh, those jobs are unskilled. We now find out that these are essential workers. You can't go to the grocery store if nobody's stocking the shelves and nobody's manning the cash registers. Uh, all of the things that you that you do routinely, it turns out, require workers making less than $15 an hour in most instances without health benefits, without paid sick days, without paid family and medical leave. These are the workers who are the backbone of this economy, and it's now clear. So I think in terms of making this an issue that's on the national radar screen, uh, the pandemic has unfortunately, for all the wrong reasons, uh, made this abundantly clear. Why does capitalism reveal its shortcomings when a disaster hits? This wasn't even one of my questions that I had written down. It was just something I was thinking about <laughs> when you're talking. Why does capitalism reveal its shortcomings when a disaster hits? I think that most of us manage to look away and, and not to see the disaster that is brewing. So uh, as you pointed out, uh, before you introduce me, uh, we've had these inequalities. We've had massive inequalities uh, in our economy. When, when the president says, isn't it great, uh, you know, the unemployment rate is so low before this pandemic, he's failed to point out that 44% of workers are working in jobs that don't pay a living wage. So, uh, we, yes, we created lots of jobs, but we also created uh, an army of the working poor. And uh, 
more educated people, people in more secure jobs tend to look at that and say, well, it's their fault. You know, they should have just gotten an education like I did. Well, this is just not true. This is just not true. And at the moment, we're beginning to see college educated workers now beginning to lose their jobs. So perhaps this will uh, enlighten people somewhat. But I do think that what happens in a crisis is that you can't look away. You can't say, I'm okay. And if they did just like I did, they would be okay also. Getting a college degree does not overcome the fact that 44% of the jobs in this country are low-wage jobs. Uh, So uh, it's a question of how do we create an economy that, in fact, uh, shares the productivity growth, shares all the positive things about our economy, shares them widely with the people who actually produce them. And I do think that in a crisis like this, we can see who are the essential workers uh, who are the people, the child care workers that have to take care of the kids, of the doctors and nurses and other health care workers on the front lines, uh, uh, you know, of, of addressing the pandemic. Uh, so we suddenly see that workers who we, we, we didn't uh, bother to notice before uh, are playing a really important role in our economy and need to be rewarded for it. the contribution they make. They need to be rewarded fairly. Nobody who works full-time, should be lacking a living wage, health care, paid, paid sick days, uh, you know, paid, paid family and medical leave, and all of the other things that higher-paid workers just take for granted. Uh, the stimulus states that paid family and medical, when it comes to paid family and medical leave, the Department of Labor may exempt businesses with fewer than 50 employees. The OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, can exclude any or even all executive branch federal employees. You would like to see both those exemptions disappear, but isn't the exemption absolutely isn't the exemption though for small businesses, businesses with under 50 employees? simply that those companies may not be able to afford that kind of paid leave, that it might put them out of business? Isn't this just a way to help protect small business, which we're always told is the backbone of the American economy? So in this particular case, during the pandemic, the federal government is going to pay all of those leaves. So there's no excuse. It's not, it's not financial. Um, and, and I will say this, paid sick days ought to be a part of a standard employment relationship, just the way a minimum wage of $15 an hour should be part of a standard employment relationship. If you can't pay your workers $15 an hour and you can't um, uh, have health uh, uh, paid sick days for them, we have to really ask, what is the value of your business? What are you contributing? I understand the problem is that no single employer can do that because they will be then undercut by bad employers who don't do that. Uh, But if we had a national law that said the minimum wage is $15 an hour, paid sick days, every employer has to be willing to provide 10 of them, then you don't have anybody out there who can undercut you. And uh, all small businesses should be able to do that. We have never said that businesses should pay for paid family and medical leave because that, in fact, is expensive. That, in fact, uh, will have uh, disparate effects. If you're a hospital with lots of young uh, women of childbearing age among your nurses, your aides, and your technicians, you could be bankrupted if you had to pay your own paid family and medical leave. Uh, but if we, and you're a steel mill, you have hardly any women of childbearing age, uh, makes no difference to you. So uh, we don't want that kind of disparity, and we don't want to put businesses under 
by making them pay for this. That's why we need, and the states that have it have already done it, you need a statewide or a nationwide program because across all workers and across all employers, very few people are having babies or having heart attacks or having strokes. It's a very small percentage of the workforce that faces those kinds of crises. So if we have a national paid leave program, uh, paid family and medical leave program, we can easily afford it. Employers can easily afford it. Uh, split between employers and employees, we're talking about 2% of payroll for for employers and employees to contribute to something that will pay you uh, your full wages uh, if you uh, need them for paid family or medical leave or close to full wages. So uh, it, it's a no-brainer to do it as a national program. We're not asking individual employers uh, to, to be doing that. But for the pandemic, the government has recognized it. I don't know about the government. The House Democrats have recognized that this is an issue. And so the, uh, the, there is a program now where uh, an employer pays out the, uh, the paid sick days or the paid family or medical leave, if we had it, the, the, for the child care purposes, the paid leave, uh, and collects that money from the government. And in fact, they can make an estimate of what they may need and collect that money up front to be able to use it to pay for the leaves of their employees. Uh, so um, it's a no-brainer for the small ones to be able to do it. Uh, OMB, this is like ridiculous. This means that uh, uh, they can simply make a decision that federal workers don't get this. And so I don't know what happens in that case. You get sick, your family member gets sick. Uh, and the other thing which you didn't mention is that this only covers uh, employers with 500 or fewer employees. So the big box stores, the Starbucks, the Walmarts, the Targets, the, the Whole Foods, the Dunkin' Donuts, I could go on with the list, they're exempt. They don't have to provide these paid sick days uh, to their employees. There's no requirement. That's and the thing that... Yeah, go on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was interrupting. Go ahead. I was going to say the thing. The thing that is that that to me is the killer in all of this is so we exempt them. We exempt these big box stores. We count all the employees in the firm, not the number that are at your local Starbucks, which maybe has twenty employees. Okay, not not that Starbucks, but the whole Starbucks company is exempt because they've got thousands of employees. But now. When it comes to loans to small business, forgivable loans, by the way, I'll talk about that in a minute, but loans to small business that they may not ever have to pay back. Uh, now we go by the size of the establishment. So your local Starbucks, your local Target, your local Walmart, they're all eligible for a loan uh, from the government that, in fact, if they meet certain conditions, they will never have to pay back. But on the other hand, they're exempt because they're part of a huge firm from uh, having to give paid uh, paid sick days. This this makes no sense. This is you know you're giving them everything. No, you don't have to pay your workers uh, for their paid sick days. But yes, you're going to be eligible for government uh, loans. That seems so weird to me. So, and as you were pointing out, the 500 employee thing, employees with 500 or more employees should not be excluded from the requirement to provide paid sick time leave. That's what you argue. I don't under, right. I don't really understand this logic, Eileen. So is this any more, and, and let's talk about government employees not being covered as well. Is this any more than playing politics by the Republican Party that is anti-government worker and that is pro 
chain big box stores. Sure. That's a, I mean, we never can know exactly what happened. That's true. But it sure as heck looks like the lobbyists for the big chain stores have done a great job of uh, protecting their members, shall we say. Uh, and they give lots of money to, uh, well, to, to politicians in general. I mean, we, we should recognize that there are plenty of corporate Democrats as well. But uh, they give their money to the uh, uh, people running for Congress or in Congress that they view as sympathetic to their aims, which is to pay workers as little as possible and make as much money as they can. You also point toward unemployment insurance, and you write that uh, unemployment insurance benefits should be either disregarded or treated as earned income in means-tested program, including SSI and SNAP. This means that the unemployment insurance that is going to be provided by the stimulus package is actually going to be used as a penalty towards those people who are getting SSI, who are getting SNAP, those people who are the most vulnerable within our economy, are those who are dependent upon SSI and SNAP. Are they going to be not only uh, penalized for getting unemployment, but is this typical within the way that SSI and SNAP recipients exist in general? Yeah. Are they always penalized for getting unemployment insurance? Because that would seem like that doesn't help them then in any way to get to a better state out of poverty. Well, uh, unemployment insurance accounts as income. And uh, so any program... Uh, other that they did exempt the Medicaid and the CHIP program for kids, but any other program that uh, relies on your income level for the level of benefits you get, uh, if you get unemployment insurance, it does count against you. I think on on uh, balance, uh, you will be better off getting the unemployment insurance than giving it up. Especially, I will tell you, we can talk about the unemployment insurance in a, in a minute. The, the House Democrats kept a sweetener in there for workers that uh, almost scuttled the bill in the Senate. Uh, but that, uh, in any event, we have something really good. We have a couple of really good things in this in this bill. Uh, but uh, it's not just the SSI. If you think about it, all of the people who get their insurance on the Obamacare exchange, which may be your listeners or their children, uh, certainly I have members of my family who get their insurance through the Obamacare exchange. And uh, if they become unemployed and collect unemployment insurance, their incomes will go up this year and their subsidies will go down. So uh, lots of people will be affected by that. And that just doesn't seem to make sense. But that is not a reason not to get the unemployment insurance, trust me, uh, because there are two uh, really great things, that, well, maybe three really great things about unemployment insurance. First, if you're in a job where you qualify for unemployment insurance and you are let go, either because your place of work shut down or because there was not enough work. Uh, You are eligible for unemployment insurance in your home state, whatever it would have been. Plus, you're going to get an additional $600 a week. Uh, And uh, if unemployment insurance usually runs in states for about 26 weeks, there's an additional 13 weeks added on to that. So you will be able to claim unemployment insurance for up to 39 weeks should you need it between now and the end of the year. Uh, And you will get an additional $600 a week. And as some in the Senate pointed out, some people have wages that are so low that their unemployment insurance plus the $600 a week is going to be more than they made while they were working. Now, nobody should hope to become unemployed 
in order to get that that little bit of uh, extra pay because you want to be attached to your workplace. Nobody knows what's going to happen after the pandemic passes. If you're attached to your workplace, you have a much better chance of having a job when this is all over than if you were unemployed. So yes, do not do not leave your job in order to get a, a little boost to your income from unemployment insurance. But what the House Democrats made sure of is that if you are unemployed, your unemployment insurance is going to be enough for you and your children, uh, to, if, if you have children at home, to live on. And that is as it should be. Now, let's suppose that you are a gig economy worker. Let's suppose that you are self-employed. Let's suppose that you are in any of the very many categories in which you do not qualify for unemployment insurance because you don't have an employer. There is a special pandemic unemployment assistance fund that the federal government is setting up. It, it, it will run through each of the 50 states, which has its, each state has its own way of doing unemployment insurance. So you'll have to watch the website for your own state's unemployment insurance for when this um, pandemic unemployment assistance goes up. But in this case, uh, you will be eligible for unemployment insurance, an amount that, that your state would have uh, given, plus the 600 a week. So uh, you are going to also be able to qualify for income if, you're, uh, if you have no business because of the pandemic uh, during this period. Uh, and I think that that's, that's just really a wonderful thing uh, that's in this bill, that people whose livelihood has been undermined by the pandemic will be eligible for regular unemployment insurance plus $600 a week for up to 39 weeks. And those who would never have been eligible uh, because they don't have an employer will now be eligible. Uh, so uh, this, I think, is all to the, all to the good. And, uh, and, and uh, you just have to thank uh, those Democrats in the House who fought for this uh, to the very end and managed to keep it in. As I say, there were four Republican senators who said, oh, we're giving people too much money. Those low-wage people don't deserve to be able to live. Uh, and uh, Bernie Sanders said, if they try to take that out, I'm going to hold up the entire bill. And so he called their bluff, and it passed. And uh, so we have that in the bill. There are a few other good things in the bill, if I can just say. We have really increased the amount of food that's going to be available uh, for those who uh, require it for food security. Getting it out to people is a bit of a challenge, but kids who require, who depended on school breakfast and lunch for their main nourishment, that is available. Uh, those who required, uh, uh, went to, through the WIC program, uh, pregnant and nursing mothers, getting food for themselves and their children, uh, even food banks. There's increased money for food banks to get food supplies. Uh, and so uh, that, that's uh, another one of the good things that is, uh, that is in the bill. Uh, so, th so there are some really good things that we managed to get in there for people. Uh, you know, uh, we, we haven't taken care of everybody not being able to be evicted. But if your landlord has a mortgage themselves that has any kind of government backing, uh, or if you are living in housing that has anything to do with HUD, uh, or if you are homeless, there's extra money to get you shelter. Uh, but but they can't evict in those cases. Uh, so uh, you know so 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 those are just some of the good things that that are actually in it. 
The um, the other really, really bad thing, really bad, oh, my God, is a half a trillion, almost $500 billion slush fund of money to be given out to companies with between 500 and 10,000 employees. So this is... This is being given out with no oversight. There was a fig leaf of oversight. A, an inspector general was written into the bill whose main power, no subpoena power, no enforcement power, whose main power would be to be able to write a report at the end saying whether the government gave out this money in a way that was fair and transparent or whether they gave it out to their cronies in the worst of crony capitalism. And a five-person commission of uh, uh, people in Congress to oversee it also with no subpoena or enforcement powers. And the president didn't, I mean, it, it was already very clear that this money was going to be given out by Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and Donald Trump to whoever they felt like giving it to. There's really almost no oversight as to where this money goes to begin with. And now, uh, the president in his signing statement, he wanted it to be blatant. He wants every every business that gets that money to know that they got it because he said they should get it. And so in his signing statement, he said, I'm not going to be bound by an inspector general or commission. We're not having those. I'm making I'm the I'm the oversight. Mnuchin's giving out the money and I'm the oversight. Well, anybody who has seen this uh, president in action knows that uh, where, where that is likely to, to lead. And uh, being in Chicago, your, your listeners may not know uh, the backstory on Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, but he was the head of One West Bank, a California uh, bank, uh, banking system that uh, foreclosed on more old people than all the other banks put together. I mean, you want to talk about doing miserable, miserable things. His bank almost closed on a very elderly woman of over 73 cents. Because if you're in a reverse mortgage, you do still have to pay for the homeowner's insurance and other charges. Uh, and she made out the check and missed the 73 cents. And if the LA Times hadn't made a cause celeb out of that, she would have been evicted. So that's, that's Mnuchin, just to give you a little taste of who it is that's giving out this money with no oversight. Uh, one thing that the, that the Dems did get into it is the money cannot be used uh, for any of the president's properties, any of his children's properties, any of the vice president's properties, the properties of any member of Congress or the uh, executives of any of the federal agencies. So at least they can't directly put money in their own pockets. But uh, for the rest of it, everybody knows the president gives out money to companies, as you pointed out in your introduction, the companies that appreciate him the most are the ones that are going to get the money. And if you didn't appreciate him enough, and especially if you didn't appreciate him enough to support his re-election campaign, uh, you know, what makes you think you're getting any money? I mean, that's how it looks to me anyway. Hey, look, we always wanted public-funded fu- public campaigns. Now we're getting them, Eileen. so uh is when it comes to that when it comes to that oversight that lack of oversight that slush fund as you call it of mnuchin's 
How likely do you think that is going to be addressed in phase four of the stimulus package that they're working on already? And a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the crit, uh, critiques that you have are about insufficient funding. Do you think that insufficient funding is something that can be addressed more easily in phase yes. four? Because at least yes. they're already accepting the problem. So the slush fund is the slush fund. It's not going away. Uh, the the exception, I have to say, is there was a carve-out for the airlines, which wanted to be part of that very, that very same slush fund. But uh, as you know, the airline attendants have a very powerful union with a leader who is, you know, just par excellence. And uh, they managed to have, a, it's true, the airlines are getting a bailout, but they must keep their workers on the payroll. They must uh, not give themselves, uh, uh, they can't use the first stock buybacks to pay dividends. They got all kinds of protect- protections for workers and for uh, the taxpayer money into the money that's going to the airlines. The rest of it has nothing like that. It has a requirement that you will keep all your workers employed to the best of your ability. You will say that you're not going to do these other things unless the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said, mm, it's okay, you can do stock buybacks. So uh, uh, it is possible to have oversight. And if you have a union, it turns out that they are strong enough to actually affect how the federal government spends taxpayer money so that it benefits workers and taxpayers. So I think that's worth pointing out. But yes, there's lots of problems uh, in terms of not enough money. Uh, There's not, and and I do also want to get back to saving lives. There's not enough happening there either. But on the not enough money front, I think that uh, your listeners have probably already heard, if you file taxes with the IRS in 2018 or 2019, you will get an automatic check of $1,200 if you're an adult, plus $500 for, uh, your, uh, for children under the age of 17. Uh, so uh, that is going to come to you automatically. You don't have to apply for it. If you've, if you've changed, you better have a, a forwarding address on your, uh, from, from the post office or inform the IRS that you have a different address. Uh, but in any case, that money is coming. Well, that's a one-time shot in the arm. We did talk about the unemployment insurance, but that's going to be weeks. The, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the State Departments of Labor are just overwhelmed by phone calls and people applying on the web. It's going to take them a while to be able to sort that out. And then for you to actually get, uh, in Pennsylvania, you need a PIN number in order to get your money. You have to wait for them to send you your PIN number. And then once you apply for it, it takes a few weeks for it to get to you. So we're talking about money coming through the unemployment insurance system in May or June. What are people supposed to do in the meantime? And so that $1,200, they're going to start giving it out on April 6th. And so in the, in the three weeks from that time, many, many people will get this money. But that's a one-shot-in-the-arm thing. That is not going to sustain you, and people are going to need more of that kind of um, money coming to them that they can immediately use to pay bills, to pay their rent, to put food on the table. Now, there are many, many people excluded from that. Uh, Certainly, any child over the age of 17 is excluded. Uh, College students, if they're taken as dependents uh, on their parents' Uh, income tax form, even if they themselves are employed and even if they themselves have lost that job, uh, are not eligible for the $1,200. So 
There's those folks. There are uh, all of uh, the immigrant population, both uh, legal and illegal. Uh, immigrants who are here legally and have an ability to work often do not have a social security number. They have a different kind of employment number, but only people with a social security number are eligible. So even legal immigrants with a right to work will not get the $1,200 and the 500 for their children. Uh, immigrants who are not here legally or do not have a right to work, they are not getting the money. And then people who are so poor uh, and have nothing to declare, get, get nothing from the government, have nothing to declare, uh, and so they don't file income taxes, they are getting nothing. Uh, and estimates are that there are, that these are not my estimates, they come from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Uh, but they estimate that there are 5.6 million adults and 2.8 million children who are left out of this. And these people are the poorest of the poor and nothing coming to them. So this, th these kinds of gaps are what we are already working on for the fourth coronavirus response bill, trying, trying to fill those gaps, trying to make sure people have enough money, trying to make sure the food is actually getting to people. Uh, the, the other big thing is, so, uh, you know, uh, something like uh, uh, this, this flush fund, uh, fund for these, um, slush fund for these big businesses, the childcare industry is very fragile. And the childcare infrastructure is going to collapse in this country if we don't do something. They, the estimates are that, and, and the request was for $50 billion for them, they got $3.5 billion. Give me a break. We will not have a childcare industry. You, you'll be ready to go back to work and there'll be no place to put your kids if they're young uh, and need care. Uh, and all of the people who are essential workers right now, whose children need to be in childcare, uh, there's not going to be a place for them. So that that's a huge emergency that uh, that needs to be dealt with uh, dealt with very quickly. So uh, the other big hole is in state and local government budgets. State and local governments are funded out of sales tax revenue and other local tax revenues. Well, nobody's buying anything. We're all sitting in our houses. Uh, and so sales tax revenue is way down. And if we don't fill that hole, then just at this moment when we need state and local government services the most, state and local governments are going to have to lay off workers and cut services because they just don't have the money to supply them. And so there is uh, money in the, in the bill for them. There's $150 billion dollars. And there's some extra little bits of money for education and for transportation, but they probably need on the order of 250 billion, not 150 billion. So getting them another 100 billion going forward uh, in the next uh, round, so that they are not laying off workers and they are not cutting uh, public services, is really essential. So we we have those kinds of of holes to fix as well. How damaging could this be to the private health insurance industry when it comes to the testing and treatment of COVID-19? The stimulus package only insists private insurers cover testing but not treatment or vaccine. You believe they should also cover treatment and the vaccine. Could the amount of coverage that uh, private insurers have to give to private citizens, could that eventually bankrupt the private insurance industry? And should we be trying to protect that industry? 
Well, we have big, there are many, many big problems around the insurance industry. So one of them um, is the fact that when we say when we say that the insurance cover, companies should cover it, if you have insurance, they will cover it up to the limits of what's in your policy. And what we would like to see is the federal government pick up your copay, pick up your deductible, pick up your coinsurance, that you as an individual should not have to pay anything. Nobody is asking the insurance companies to pay for those things. We're asking the government to pay for those things. And then for all of the people who have no insurance, which as you know are millions and millions in this country, uh, the government should simply pay for their, for their uh, care. Who's going to go get tested, find out that they have it, that the hospital wants to put you in the hospital right away, and you know that you have no way ever to pay that back? How's, how's that working? So you can be sure that people will avoid testing even when it's available, unless they are desperately ill uh, because they can't afford the care. So what we want, and hopefully this will be in the fourth bill, is that for people who don't have insurance, the government will pick up the tab. And for people who do have insurance, the government will pick up all of the out-of-pocket costs that people would have. The insurance companies are being required already in the bill that passed to uh, cover the vaccine if it ever becomes available. So testing and vaccines should not cost a person with insurance anything. But if you go into the hospital and, and think about it, Everybody who is either self has bought their own insurance privately or is insured through the Obama exchange has probably taken a bronze plan because that's the most affordable. Well, those bronze plans have huge deductibles. Uh, and so, you know, you're going to be out thousands and thousands of dollars, even if you have insurance, unless the government covers the deductibles, covers the co-pays, covers the co-insurance. And we're working on getting that into the fourth bill as well. Does this prove, does this amount of stimulus that the government was able to come up with, does this prove that ideas like austerity and our inability to pay for universal health care or pay for in-state tuition or for college students or to forgive student loans, does this stimulus package prove that all of those things were all a, a fake, a hoax, because we could have paid for all of this the entire time? So the, the short answer is yes. Uh, and we actually, we actually learned that when the president Trump uh, had that huge tax cut for the wealthy in this country and drove up the debt and the deficit and no bad things happened. In inflation didn't come around. Interest rates didn't go through the roof. In fact, they were quite low even before the pandemic. So yes, we knew it from that. And yes, we can see it from this. And I will say that there are now many more economists coming around to this view. I mean, economist models had always said, if you increase the deficit, you increase the debt, interest rates will rise, inflation will rise, and on balance, we're going to have terrible problems. They weren't right then. And we've known, the thing is, we've known how to deal with inflation ever since Keynes uh, uh, wrote the general theory. Keynes was a great economist, who we named Keynesian economics. And he said, we can have fiscal policy when the economy is slow uh, up until the time that you see inflation. And when you see inflation, we know how to bring inflation under control. We do. So let's not worry about it. The modern monetary theory folks have been out there saying the constraint on what we can spend 
is not the amount of money that the government has in taxes, but the amount of resources that the country has that can be deployed. So the short answer is, and as we see in many, many other capitalist countries, it is possible to have free college. It is possible to have a universal health system, although, of course, uh, the taxes do go towards some of that, but taxes are not the limit on, on how much you can do. So the short answer is yes, we can spend lots more money on lots of things that are important to people. Uh, the longer answer is, well, we didn't have these things from the get-go. Uh, that, that These things were adopted in other countries on a rolling basis. They didn't put everything in place at once. So the criticism from the left of modern monetary theory are criticisms that assume that every good thing that all of us want, a Green New Deal, uh, universal health care that is a government-sponsored program, paid family and medical leave that is a government-sponsored program, uh, forgiveness of student debt, that all of these things that we want, we can have them, but we can't have them all at once. And I will say, I myself am not too worried that our Congress is going to enact all of these things all at once. But we do need to say which are the most important and let's start making progress on them. Which are the things that are most affordable? Which are the things that will give us the biggest boost? Your point about climate change, I mean, the same people who denied climate change and the same thing that happened to the scientists who put out the evidence in which they were harassed and in, in every way, uh, you know, uh, had their names dragged through the mud by people who said, oh, they're, it's just a hoax. They're trying to enrich China. They're on the payroll of China. They want to see the U.S. economy tank. Well, isn't that what we're saying about all the epidemiologists and medical doctors who understand what the pandemic is? The, the same deniers. And so uh, we, we need to be able to, to begin making serious progress on climate change, just as we are now beginning to make serious progress on the pandemic. I, I want to come back to one thing about the serious progress, however, and that is my first priority when I think about it is what do we need to do to save lives? And there is money in this bill for expanding um, Medicaid, for giving money to hospitals, which are going to be in serious trouble because they can't carry out their normal business. There is money for things like that. But what we really need that is not happening is the president is the only one with the ability to invoke the Defense Production Act, which he has invoked but has not really applied, uh, to make sure that 3M and the other companies like 3M that can be making these N95 uh, masks to protect uh, healthcare workers and uh, grocery store workers, protect all the people who have to be out there interacting with the public and maybe interacting with sick people from getting the illness themselves. We need to invoke it. We need to say, you will produce it. You will teach other companies how they can produce it. And we are going to be making masks by the millions. He did not do that. He still hasn't done that. The protective gear that people need in hospitals to wear, the ventilators, which we're finally making some progress on. The thing about the Defense Production Act is that the president can set priorities and he can say to an industry, this is what you will produce. Here's how many we are going to buy so you know that it's worth gearing up because we're going to buy thousands and thousands of these. And here is what we're going to pay. We're not asking them to do it for free, but we're saying, no, you can't set the price. 
So, of course, what happens is you don't have a government uh, uh, directive to 3M. And I'm not picking out 3M by itself. 3M is an example of similar companies that could be producing gear that we need, uh, protective gear that we need. Uh, the president has not ordered them to do it, so they're producing however much of it they want. And because the, the president hasn't ordered them to produce it and hasn't taken command or had, his, uh, had the appropriate agencies take command of distributing this gear and these masks and these respirator things and these ventilators where they're most needed, what you have is a competition among states and among hospitals to get this, driving up the price and making excess profits for the companies that produce it. Not only are they not just getting a fair price for it, they're making excess profits because the president will not tell them, here's what you're making, here's what we're paying, and here's where you're sending it. Uh, and so the gear and the ventilators are going to those localities and those hospitals that have the most to spend not the ones that have the sickest patients. This is crazy. I'm telling you that thousands of people will die unnecessarily because of this. And if this is not the same thing as killing somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and getting away with it, I don't know what is. And we should all, you know, uh, hats off to the GE workers who walked off yesterday who insisted that they be building ventilators and not doing what they were doing at their jobs. So that was a really amazing action by them. One last question for you, Eileen. We've been speaking with economist Eileen Applebaum, co-author of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, The U.S. Response to COVID-19. You can find that report at CEPR.net. And you can follow Eileen on Twitter at Eileen Applebaum. As we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Yesterday, CNBC reported economists at the Fed St. Louis District Project or project total employment reductions of 47 million, which would translate to a 32.1% unemployment rate, according to a recent analysis of how bad things could get. Can we, to what degree, Eileen, can we stimulus our way out of 32% unemployment? So I, I tell you, one of the most important things is, is not just the stimulus, but uh, keeping people attached to their jobs, making sure that they stay on the payroll, uh, even if they're not actually at work. Uh, and we certainly have provisions for this uh, and for small for businesses with 500 or fewer employees uh, can get a loan to, to make payroll. And if you do make payroll, you can also pay your rent and your utilities out of it. And if you keep those employees through the next four months, the government will forgive the loan. It won't cost you anything. But what we know from other from the recovery right now in China, is that if the workers stay attached to their employer, that as the pandemic passes, these companies can ramp up quickly and uh, get back up to speed in some reasonable period of time. You have what's called a V-shaped recovery. We went down really fast, we come back really fast. If we don't do that, if companies let their workers go, if workers are busy looking for other jobs and companies have to go find employees and uh, retrain them and make a decision about whether they want to have employees and whether they want to reopen, uh, then we may end up with a U-shaped recovery, which means it takes a lot longer to, uh, to get back to normal stimulus or no stimulus, or we could turn into a country that has a backward L. We've, we're, we're down at the bottom for a very long time. So one of the important things is for 
uh, companies to be required to hold on to workers, which we did for the for the smaller companies with 500 or fewer. But that slush fund, 500 to 10,000 employees, no such requirement. A good faith effort they're supposed to make to do it, but no such requirement. Uh, and then the second thing is, uh, yes, we do know how to stimulate our way back. We are going to have to be careful about priorities. We've needed infrastructure investment forever. We've needed uh, a Green New Deal forever. Uh, coming out of this pandemic would be a really good time to begin working on those two fronts to make sure that, in fact, uh, all of these millions of workers who are losing their jobs will have jobs to come back to. Eileen, thank you so much for being back on our show. This is Eileen's third appearance on This Is Hell. You can hear our past interviews with her by searching on her name, Applebaum, at thisishell.com. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell. If what you just heard from Elaine Applebaum on what we hoped the U.S. government would do for us as we were facing a pandemic without a vaccine, if that was in some way enlightening about the early days of the pandemic or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This week and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far this week's question from hell is what weather event would finally bring humanity to its senses Maybe. Apparently, it's not 60 degree temperatures in January, which is just really, really freaky. And I hate watching uh, the news uh, weather forecasts because they're always so happy about it being 60 degrees in January. It's really. Yeah, I mean, just people in general. Like, you go to the park when it's like 60 degrees in January and. And it's like, oh, it's nice to be out, but at the same time, I'm like, this is not supposed to be this way. <laughs> no, it is not. I mean, so you you almost played this episode that was called something. Like, what is it called? We are already living under right wing climate realism. Yeah. I don't. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but how I feel about it is like, I mean, even if. It's like there have always been homeless people who are exposed to the elements, like, because of capitalism. I don't know. I don't really like the apocalyptic visions of things because, yeah, it's it, climate crisis has been happening for a while for a lot of people. But if yeah. I had to say one, <laughs> one kind of weather that really freaks me out is tornadoes. Like, I'm from Phoenix, and they don't really have tornadoes there because they have a lot of mountains. But... I just saw The Wizard of Oz too many times <laughs> as a kid, and and yeah, they, they could happen more often. They're really destructive, and yeah. They are creepy. The sound of them is really intense. When I was a little kid, I saw two tornadoes at the same time coming in from different directions, and it was scary as hell because I was outdoors. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> I, it was really bad. It was really bad. I was like a seven-year-old, re- read a book about tornadoes in my class and came home and was like, Mom, we need a plan. <laughs> we need to keep pillows in the bathroom. So we need to get in the tub and we need to practice. <laughs> exactly. I remember she was like, kid, no, we don't. <laughs> no, we do not. I remember as a kid, uh, they would always say on the no- news, go to the southeast corner of your basement. And I immediately decided I need to figure out what's south and what's east right now because I was freaking out about it. So what are the responses that we do have for uh, the question from Hell so far? Uh, do you happen to know what the last we one was We did two yesterday? from Facebook, and that was it, just the first okay, two from Facebook. Okay, the first two from Facebook were red. There are two more. All right. So from Cody K, we got, to, I don't know how to say this word. Sorry, Cody K. Tutulu's to, to, to Awakening. A Cthulhu's 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 Awakening. Awakening. That is Who's an H.R. Lovecraft uh, car- uh, horror story monster that he came up with. So mm. people can look it up if they want to. Yes, and then uh, from Fabio AJ, we have Hell Freezing Over. All right. Any on Twitter? Let's see. Let us do see. Let's uh, see what's going on over there. I think my Firefox is functioning <laughs> again. So. Mm. I totally forgot that there was a browser called Firefox. Yeah, for some reason it's the one we use. No, but this why. gives you a good lesson. Don't only have one browser, browser on your computer. Uh, we have Safari as well, apparently. But it's failing. But miserably. just in case that one fails, maybe we should download Chrome. But it also goes to show how powerless we are to all these companies. Like, <laughs> That's a good point. What if too. none of them work? Okay. What if they do that and then destroy the post office? You know? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, our responses on Twitter. There aren't any. No. We need, we need, I'm going to retweet it or something. Retweet. There you go. Uh, so uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to this is hell. Dot com and clicking on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing the winner right before or right after we play a first time ever airing of a Patreon monologue, which we are bringing out from behind the paywall. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. We heard from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. Listener Sean is interested in working with us here on This Is Hell. Sean writes, Hi, Chuck and company. As a fortunate possessor of free time, I wish I had some free time, and a recent convert up to the wondrous world of This Is Hell, I'd be glad to offer my abilities in whatever capacity is needed at the studio. My prior experience and specialized education is in software and computing, so website and or digital archiving work would be more up my alley. I currently live in the west suburbs of Chicago, making the studio a reasonable commute away. In any case, I look forward to hearing back from you. Thanks, Sean. So, Sean, we will be emailing you and everyone who has contacted us about working uh, with us on the show if you are interested in being a producer on the show and running the board like Seb has, like Lindsay and Dan do, like Richard and Alex sometimes do, if you are available at least once a week, Monday through Thursday, beginning at 9.30 in the morning, and you can physically be here at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood on the second floor above Carrie's Lounge and do a three-hour shift for a living wage, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. 
We also got a guest suggestion sent to us from Stephen O, who writes, Hey, Chuck, long-time listener and patron, first-time writer in, writing in. First, I uh, want to thank you for everything you do. I'm so grateful for your work on the show and the community you have built at This Is Hell. You are truly an inspiration. The police killing of a protester in Atlanta and the media's coverage of the events has frozen my heart, and I feel this story desperately needs attention. I would love to see This Is Hell interview an Atlanta activist in the Stop Cop City movement or journalist David Peisner, who wrote this fantastic article in December at bittersoutherner.com, Forest for the Trees, and has since followed up with a memorial of Tortuguita this week. Tortuguita is how the journalist David Peisner said he knew Manuel Turan, the protester uh, who was the police shooting victim. Stephen continues, in David's words, Cop City represents something of a perfect storm, a single project that catalyzes fears of ecological degradation, state-sponsored violence, police militarization, environmental racism, opaque governance, and the long legacy of white supremacy. And he adds that since David wrote this article, an activist, Tortuguita, was killed by police. Several activists have been arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. The politicians, the police, and media are demonizing the victims and using the tragedy to fuel even more authoritarian measures. I went to the Washington Post and New York Times websites to see how the corporate media was portraying the story. Of course, only the quote-unquote violent protest that erupted after the police murdered a protester was covered. What really did shock me, though, was that in the Washington Post's environment section, there was no mention at all that an environmental activist was killed. Instead, they're running the insane story on page one. Single-use coffee pods have surprising environmental benefits over other brewing methods. This is hell, after all. I feel guilty writing this to you. Uh, not only did I give you a migraine for my bad grammar, but I'm sorry to put you in a position to digest more hell when I'm sure you're quite full. But hey, you're strong and you said you could. we could email you, so I'm sending it anyway. Thank you for everything. Stay healthy, and I will stop by Carrie's Lounge next time I'm in Chicago. All the best, Stephen from Indiana. Stephen from Indiana, this is great because Dan and I have been talking about getting a guest on to talk about Cop City and the Stop Cop City campaign in Atlanta for several months now, and David's work looks great. How can it not be? After all, the site is called Bitter Southerner, and you had me at bitter. Lindsay, what is the next and final interview in our series, This Is Hell, The Lost Early Pandemic Tapes, that aren't really on tapes, but I just thought it sounded cool. Tomorrow, we have an interview from March 25th, 2020, with Max Haven, who wrote the Roar Magazine article, No Return to Normal, for a post-pandemic liberation. Today, new forms of solidarity, mutual aid, and common struggle are emerging in the pandemic. How will they shape tomorrow's struggles for a post-capitalist world? And Jeff Dorchin is taking the week off from the moment of truth. So we're playing one of my Patreon monologues for the first time ever. We are taking one of my monologues out from behind the paywall and playing it here on This Is Hell, live streaming podcast, as well as live over the air on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment. And my monologue is all about unlicensed love. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. 
Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing on a very difficult morning with all the different changes we had to do. You did a great job on the fly. I truly appreciate it. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>